Well, in the early in the early 16th century, there lived a man named Martin Luther. Uh, he was an Augustinian monk, as well as a doctor of divinity and a professor of theology at Wittenberg in Germany. Now, in October 1517, he drew up 95 theses and nailed them to the castle church door. And he invited anyone to, to debate these short statements of theology. The statements were about the sale of indulgences. It was said that uh, the surplus merit uh, generated from the good works of Christ and of the saints um, had been placed in a treasury of merits. And the Pope was the only one who had the key to this. These merits could be given out uh, to penitent sinners so that they could be forgiven for their sin or to spend less time in purgatory. These merits were given out in the form of indulgences, which were often bought for cash and which raised funds for various church projects, such as the building of uh, St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. And so Luther criticised uh, the popular notions about purgatory and he raises the question to us, how are we to obtain forgiveness from God? Now for years Luther had struggled deeply with his own sin and he believed that God would always be angry with him in spite of whatever he did and what efforts he put in. But as Professor of Theology he began to give lectures on parts of the Bible including Galatians as well as uh, Psalms and Romans and Hebrews um, and during that time as he prepared these lectures he made great discoveries and was transformed by them that led him to nail up these 95 theses and that was the beginning of the Reformation. Now Galatians had a part in this major turning point in history and it had a part in transforming many other lives throughout history. And today we'll look at Galatians chapters, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 to 10. So if you turn to that passage, I'll first begin with uh, giving you a bit of a background to the letter. We'll only be visiting for, for this week, and next week we'll go back to Genesis uh, when Andrew comes back. But first of all, Galatians is a letter written by Paul. Uh, we can see the conventions uh, similar to other letters in the New Testament. Uh, Paul first introduces himself as the author of this letter and then he identifies who he's writing to, which is uh, the churches in Galatia. And then in verse 3, he gives us a greeting. Now, Galatia is a region where Turkey is today. Uh, we get various hints within the letter that Paul had preached the gospel to them in the past and according to the book of Acts, um, Paul uh, went on a missionary journey there uh, when, uh, when he was prevented from going to other places and they travelled throughout the whole region and they preached the gospel first to the Jews in the synagogue and then to the Gentiles. Now if you're familiar with any of Paul's letters you might notice some differences uh, to all of his other ones. Um, the most obvious difference is the tone. It's explosive. Normally he would address his readers um, as saints or faithful brothers or as a church of God or of Jesus. And then after his greetings he would give a prayer of thanksgiving to God and, how, and for how well the church is going. But here in Galatians he simply addresses them as the churches of Galatia. And then he immediately lashes out at them with a rebuke. In verse 6 he says he's astonished and he calls them deserters 
And then in verse 8 and 9, he gives a stern warning. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In the Old Testament, the word translated accursed was used when Israel was going to war with the nations and God commanded them to uh, devote them to total destruction. And so in other words, Paul is saying to them, they can go to hell. So Paul is dealing with some problems with the Galatian churches. In verse 6 he tells us that these, what these problems actually are. There are people who have come into their church and have brought false teaching to them. And the churches are listening to them and being misled. He describes the teachers as troublemakers and he says that the teaching is a distortion of the truth. But what exactly, is, uh, what exactly are they teaching that is wrong? Well, turn to me uh, for a moment to chapter 6, over a couple of pages, uh, and look at verse 12. It says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So you can see that the false teachers were teaching that the Galatians needed to be uh, circumcised even though they were Gentiles. But circumcision was only the beginning. They were also teaching that they were required to follow all the whole uh, uh, law of Moses as set out in the Old Testament. It meant that they were required to keep the Sabbath each week and to celebrate the Passover and various other festivals. They would have to pay attention to all the food laws, which means that they couldn't eat pork or ostrich or anything that died naturally. They would have to keep separate kitchens for cooking different things because if you mix certain foods, then they would become unclean. And they would have to make sure that they did their ritual cleansing each day. In other words, they were basically teaching that the Galatians had to become Jews. But what is wrong with with their teaching? After all, these are the teachings of the Old Testament. For example, if you were here last week, uh, as we looked at Genesis chapter 17, um, circumcision was first introduced in the Bible. And at that time, Abraham had been chosen by God to be in a special relationship with him and to receive his blessings. And then God commanded Abraham to circumcise himself and every male in his household and all of his descendants were to carry on that tradition. And circumcision was to be a sign and a seal of the covenant that God made with Abraham. It was the sign that set the Jews apart as God's special people that he chose among all the nations. And God said that it would be an everlasting covenant. And he commanded that if you didn't do it, then you would be cut off from his people. Clearly, it was an important law to follow. So, did Paul get it wrong? Well, no doubt the Galatians would have been asking themselves the same question. And it's also probable that the false teachers would have been undermining his authority. They would have been saying that Paul was helpful in evangelizing them, but that uh, his message was lacking something and that they need to supplement it with something else which is what they had to teach and so who was to say who was right it was Paul's word against theirs but if you have a look at verse 1 Paul describes who he actually is he calls himself an apostle at the beginning of the book of Acts uh, after Jesus had ascended into heaven the 11 apostles were looking for a replacement apostle Uh, for Judas who had betrayed Jesus 
and they describe the apostolic role uh, as witnesses to Jesus, um, uh, to Jesus' resurrection. The criteria for a suitable replacement was that they had to have been travelling among them uh, during the time of Jesus' ministry and that they actually saw who Jesus was and what he did and what he taught. Now, according to the testimony of the apostles, Jesus really did live and he taught various things and died on the cross and was raised back from the dead. And it was important for them to preserve the message of Christianity based on the facts that they witnessed in history. But at that time, Paul wasn't chosen as the new apostle. In fact, he wasn't even close because he was actually working against the Christians and persecuting the churches at the time. So how could he have been an apostle? Well, if you look further on in verse 1, Paul describes his apostleship. It was not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. If a church leader placed his hands on Paul's head and called him an apostle, it probably wouldn't have meant much because it was a human appointment. But Paul says his authority came straight from Jesus and from God. He's describing his conversion when Jesus appeared to him in a vision and appointed him as an apostle. And at that point, Paul was transformed from being a fierce persecutor of the church to being a devoted evangelist. Now, in the second half of chapter 1, which we won't cover today, but Paul continues to defend his apostleship and makes it clear that his mes- the message he received was complete when he received it. And he proved this by going up to Jerusalem and to the other apostles, and they found that they didn't have anything to supplement it with, um, but approved his message as apostolic and gave him the hand of fellowship. So if Paul is a legitimate apostle, appointed by God, then he speaks with God's authority. That means we better listen to him, and not to some other teacher who contradicts him, but might sound impressive. Now today, Paul's reputation isn't always very good. He's often branded as sexist and homophobic, and he's notorious for saying things which are extreme and politically incorrect and outdated. But if he's speaking on behalf of God, then we can't ignore him. I think when the Bible says something that we don't agree with, our our usual impulse is to just sweep it aside without even thinking about it twice. But when we do that, we place our own judgment as the final authority over and above God. And that's a very dangerous thing for us to do. So I think twice before we do it. Now before I continue, um, I just want to address a side point. Um, The circumcision controversy raises for us an issue concerning uh, the way we interpret the Bible. Um, and especially the Old Testament. You could argue from the Old Testament that the false teachers were right about uh, their insistence on circumcision and following all the other laws. Um, For example, it says that if you didn't get circumcised, you would be cut off from his people. But then again, in the rest of Galatians, Paul actually argues from the Old Testament how these false teachers are wrong. It's because the Old Testament is only half the story. It's like having um, an instruction manual for, say, building a table. Um, And you could, and say you only follow half the instructions on the first page, which means that you don't put the legs on the table. And so for dinner each day, 
you sit, you sit at your chairs and you get a sore back from having to bend over to reach to the tabletop that's lying on the floor. And then your neighbour comes and sees it and one day says, what are you doing? The table's supposed to be this high and it's got legs on it. Didn't you read the manual? Or alternatively, you could um, turn to the end of the manual and see the finished product. And you could figure out from there that the, the, how the various parts would fit together that obviously the legs need to be attached to the tabletop. Now, the gospel is God's finished product in the Bible. Or in the way Jesus describes it, it's the fulfilment of the Bible. So we're meant to understand the Bible in terms of the gospel as we read it. So what is the gospel? What is the right teaching according to Paul? Well, in, in chapter 1, verse 3 to 5, he gives us a concise definition. So come with me to that, those verses and we'll read it. Um, it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now firstly, the gospel is a message of peace. Since the Old Testament, the Jews have always looked forward to God bringing them peace. Peace meant that they could settle in their land and enjoy its fruit and prosperity, and God would give them victory over the enemy nations. But today, Israel is still waiting for this peace. They have suffered atrocities in history, especially uh, with the Holocaust during World War I. They're still in constant uh, war over their promised uh, land in Palestine. They've been scattered all over the world, but they still wait for this hope of peace, and they greet one another with the word Shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace. Now the Gospel message is that God has already brought peace to our world. This includes peace with each other, but most importantly, it is peace with God himself. In verse 4, we are described as sinful people and that we've lived in an evil age. We spend most of our time ignoring him and doing whatever we want. We are enemies with him and we face his judgment. But the Gospel tells us that we can be at peace with God. It means we can be reconciled with him and that we would no longer be his enemies but he will forgive us for our sins. Now the only way we can enter into peace with God is by his grace. Now the word grace nowadays has religious connotations. Uh, for example, we might address the archbishop as your grace or uh, we might, or usually every week we give a prayer of the grace at the end of our meetings or during bef uh, before meals we say grace. But... The word grace basically means kindness or generosity. If someone is being gracious, then they are giving something to you as a gift out of their generosity. And not because you've done something to deserve it. The opposite of grace is uh, to receive something because you have earned it. When I go to work, I deserve to be paid a salary uh, for the work I do for my employer. But there was one occasion my boss forget, forgot to pay my salary, and so I told him about it. 
And when he did pay me, I made a point to go and thank him. And he, his response was to say, what do you need to thank me for? It's what you're supposed to be paid. Um, we're not a charity here. We receive grace from God in that he forgives us so that we can be at peace with him. Now since Paul is discussing, discussing the Jewish law, Paul expresses it in terms of legal, uh, legal terms. If you continue reading on in chapters 2 and 3, you can see this more as he mentions words like uh, law and righteousness and justification. If you imagine you were arrested for a crime and you were brought for a judge and tried. And after the evidence is presented, the judge would pronounce his verdict. Uh, you would either be justified or declared guilty. If you were guilty, you would have to pay the penalty, which depends on how serious the crime is. It may, be, may simply be a fine, or you could be put in jail, or you may even be executed. But the penalty isn't to serve as an example so that people uh, uh, would know what would happen if they committed the same crime, nor is it uh, uh, a means to rehabilitate you so that you wouldn't do it again. The primary reason for the penalty is so that justice is served. Basically, you get what you deserve. If you commit a crime, then you deserve to be punished in a certain way. The penalty we deserve for sin is death. That is how serious our crime is before God. Now, if you've ever been in a position where you've been wronged, no, sorry, if the penalty is so serious, then it would be no easy thing to get off the hook. You can't simply free a prisoner when he is on death row. The victims of the crime will feel cheated that he got away with it, and they will demand justice be served, and that the criminal gets what he deserves. But God, who is the judge, also happens to be the victim, so to speak, in, in that he is the one being sinned against. And in this situation, he is in a position to forgive the trespass. If you've ever been in a position where you have been wronged, it's very difficult to forgive the person and repair the relationship. Well, from my own experience, uh, my wife and I would sometimes have a quarrel, and then uh, for the next few hours we might have a cold war where we just don't talk to each other. And then um, later on we might confront each other and have a standoff and we put everything on the table and we, and we argue it out and we say, this is what you did and this is what I did and you should have done that and this is what you should have done but you didn't and etc. and etc. Now, let's just say for the purpose of this illustration that Shirley is the one who is in the wrong. Of course, uh, not, not very, that doesn't happen very often, so I'll just take this opportunity. So Shirley says, okay, I'm sorry that I did that to you. Will you forgive me? Now, I imagine that if I was in that position, I'd be thinking, no. I don't want to forgive you. I don't feel like forgiving you because I'm still angry. Forgiveness is really difficult. When you, when you forgive, you're not pretending that it never happened. You acknowledge that it happened, that you have been wronged, and, that you, and you acknowledge that the offender owes you for what you lost. And then when you forgive, you forego justice, and you bear the cost of it, so that the offender no longer owes you anything. 
when God forgives, it would have been immensely painful for himself. In fact, in verse 4, we see how costly it was for him. Jesus gave himself up for our sins. A life was taken. In Jesus, God bore the punishment for sin in himself. As a result of the penalty for our sin, the penalty for our sin has been paid for completely. But not only that, we are also delivered from this present evil age. This is referring to how our world is ruled by evil and sin. But that God transforms us so that we're no longer under its power. And this is done by God as he gives us his spirit to dwell in us and to change us. Now all of this was done according to God's will. Even though it was Jesus who died on the cross, it wasn't that he was forced by God, but he did it willingly and he gave himself up. But here we see that God and Christ were one in purpose. And that purpose was to reconcile the world to himself. Now let's come back to the issue with the Galatians for a moment. Now the false teachers were telling them that they had, be, had to become Jews and to, and to be circumcised and Paul on the other hand is saying that they're wrong. Now in the grand scheme of things, is it really a big deal? I mean they're fighting over whether or not you should cut off uh, a piece of skin. I mean is Paul just overreacting? Well, the issue at the heart of it is how do you establish and maintain a relationship with God? The false teachers were saying that you maintain a relationship uh, by getting circumcised and by obeying the laws. But if the gospel is about grace, then your relationship with God is a gift from him. You can't do anything to earn it. But if you say that doing something is what keeps your relationship with God, then it's no longer about grace. It's about doing it, which takes the glory away from God and onto yourself and what you've achieved. So if you add rules to the gospel, it's not an improvement. Paul says it's no gospel at all. From verse 6 he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. The gospel plus anything equals no gospel. Now, I doubt that circumcision would have been an issue for us today, but there are plenty of other things that we do that we think we can contribute to our salvation. You might think that it's by being baptised that you get, get right with God, or perhaps it's by making sure that you go to church a number of times each month. Or perhaps by fulfilling your duties on the church roster. Or by evangelizing a certain number of people. Or by making sure that you get your regular Holy Communion. Or maybe it's if you can speak in tongues and you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And all these, well, all these things don't improve or maintain your relationship with God. If anyone teaches to you that, that you need to do these things, then watch out because it is not the gospel. Paul says in verse 8 and 9 that even if we or an angel should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, 
Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. We need to be assured in God's grace. I once met a man who told me that he could never be forgiven by God because the things he had done in his life were just too terrible. Now I don't know exactly what it was that he felt guilty about, but he understood that his sin before God was serious. But at the same time he couldn't understand that God would forgive him in spite of all of that, by his grace. And we do something similar when we begin to have doubts about whether God really has. We look at our own lives and we often only see failure. Maybe it's because you don't spend enough time praying and reading the Bible. Or because it's because you can't stop gossiping and lying to people. Or that you can't control your temper and your language and you abuse everyone around you. Or maybe it's because you can't help indulging yourself in pornography on the internet and you just feel dirty for doing it. And you think that maybe that's why you're suffering at this point in time because God is punishing you for all these things that you're doing. And all these things make you think that there must be something that you can do to help make things right. But with the gospel, there really is nothing because it's by grace and God has already done it in Jesus. So trust in God and be assured that what he has done is more than enough for you. Now, I began today talking about Martin Luther, who struggled with his own sin, and this is how he described his experience. I tried to live according to the rule of the monastery, and I used to be contrite to confess and enumerate my sins I often repeated my confession and zealously performed my required penance. And yet, my conscience would never give me assurance. But I was always doubting and said, You did not perform that correctly. You were not contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. It was later on that Luther began to understand that we are saved by grace alone. And suddenly he felt a huge uh, burden lift off his shoulders because he knew that he couldn't help himself but, and now he knew that God did it for him. And so if someone asks you the question, why would God let you into heaven? How would you answer? If you begin your answer by saying, because I, well, if you say I, then you'll be talking about yourself and about what you've done, as if you've done something to earn it. But if you trust in God's grace, then your answer should be, because God has forgiven me, because Jesus gave himself for my sins. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for the grace that you have shown to us that you loved us even in spite of what we have done against you, the offences that we have caused. Father, we thank you that you were willing to give up such a huge cost in order to save us, that we may be justified 
and be made righteous. So Father, we thank you today that we can be assured that our place before you is at peace, that we can be friends with you again, and that we have no fear of being under your judgment. And so Father, as we live in this assurance, we pray that we would live appropriately as your people, to be living in worship, knowing that you are in fellowship with us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.